AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and welcome to episode 64 of AFF On Air, the podcast that helps you to maximise your frequent flyer points. It's Saturday the 10th of July 2021. This week, Consumer Group Choice released a timely report into the problems faced by consumers when trying to get a refund for cancelled travel, something that a lot of us have had to try to do unfortunately over the last year or so. In this episode, I speak to one of the authors of the report, Alison Elliott from Choice, about what they found, their new campaign to make the laws in Australia more consumer-friendly, and tips for airline customers who might be struggling to get a refund or use their travel credits. And later, I'll talk about what's happening with the Trans-Tasman travel bubble and why Qantas's decision to close airport service desks has backfired. That's coming up, but we begin as always this fortnight with a roundup of the latest airline and frequent flyer news. And firstly, South Australia will trial home quarantine for returning international travellers who've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, the Prime Minister revealed, after yesterday's National Cabinet meeting. If successful, the two-week trial could pave the way for more vaccinated Australians to be able to quarantine at home when returning from countries overseas that aren't yet part of a travel bubble, but still represent relatively low risk initially. But the Prime Minister has not yet said when the trial will start. The announcement is consistent with the four-phase plan announced by the Prime Minister last week, which the National Cabinet has agreed to in principle. Currently, we're in the first phase, which sees international borders remaining closed, but various trials and pilot programs taking place, like the one in South Australia shortly. When Australia eventually uh, moves to phase two, vaccinated Australians would be exempt from domestic border restrictions, and inbound arrival caps would be increased for vaccinated travellers who would also be subject to less strict quarantine requirements when arriving in Australia. But the outbound travel ban and inbound arrival caps would not be abolished until phase three, nor would quarantine-free travel bubbles open up with more countries until then. And then finally, under phase four, international travel restrictions would be removed for people vaccinated against COVID-19, but pre-flight testing might still be required for people who are not vaccinated coming into Australia. Unfortunately, while it is nice to have some sort of a plan, the government will not yet say when we'll actually be able to move to phases two, three and four. The Prime Minister said that it will be based on the percentage of the Australian population vaccinated against COVID-19, but has not yet said what that number will be. And at this stage, it looks most likely that Australia would move to Phase 2 sometime in early next year. Unfortunately, the only actual firm commitment um, that was made by the Prime Minister after last Friday's National Cabinet meeting was a decision to halve the already low inbound arrival caps into Australia by the 14th of July. The reduced caps will remain until at least the end of August, but they could remain until the end of this year. Sadly, this decision is already having devastating effects on Australians who are stuck overseas indefinitely and whose flights have now been cancelled. Some of them had already quit their jobs, handed back the leases to their houses or brought their children out of school, and now they're stuck in limbo and on the verge of homelessness because they can't get on a flight home. The government says it will send more repatriation flights to Darwin to compensate for the reduced caps, but this won't even come close to making up the difference. 
The federal government said last week that around 34,000 Australians remain stuck overseas. But let's be real, that is a gross underestimate of the actual number which keeps getting repeated by the media. In truth, this is just the number of Australians currently registered with DFAT as trying to return home right now. In November 2020, there were just under 37,000 Australians registered with DFAT. Then in March 2021, the government said that the number was around 36,000. Now, in July 2021, it's 34,000. Yet in the same time that it's taken to reduce the number of Australians registered with DFAT by around 3,000, around 170,000 people have arrived in Australia. So either the numbers are way off, or the most vulnerable Australians, after all that's why they're registered with DFAT, have been left behind. It's probably a combination of both. And with so much demand now for flights back to Australia and airlines only allowed to carry a very small number of people per flight, airfares to Australia have ballooned to as high as $38,000 in some cases for a one-way ticket. To rub salt into the wounds of those Australians trying to get home, the day before National Cabinet agreed to halve the arrival caps on the insistence of the Premiers of Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia, the Queensland Government increased the cost of hotel quarantine in Queensland from $2,800 to $3,220 per person. And the cost for children aged between 13 and 17 increased by $840 each in Queensland. In other news, Avianca will stop automatically extending the validity of expiring life miles on the 31st of July. From this date, the usual life miles policy of miles expiring after 12 months unless you earn at least one mile per year will again apply. So if you have an existing balance of life miles, even if you don't sure when you're going to be able to use them, make sure that before the 31st of July you earn at least one new mile one option would be to buy 1,000 miles, which is the minimum amount, which costs 33 US dollars, although there are other options as well. Etihad Guest has quietly ended its partnerships with Czech Airlines and Brazil's Goal Airlines, and it comes just a month after Etihad also ended its partnership with Air Seychelles. Etihad Guest members can no longer earn or redeem miles with any of those airlines. But in some good news, Etihad has recently announced a new partnership with Israel's flag carrier Al Al, following the normalisation of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This will include reciprocal frequent flyer benefits, meaning it will soon be possible to earn and redeem Etihad guest miles for Al Al flights and vice versa. Qantas Frequent Flyer is giving more time to members who took advantage of the Qantas Status Fast Track promotion in April 2021 as an acknowledgement of the travel disruption caused by the recent lockdowns and border closures across Australia. Qantas members who took advantage of that offer will now have until the 30th of September. There are also now more ways to earn Qantas Status credits on the ground. Thanks to a new offer from BP, BP Rewards members with a linked Qantas Frequent Flyer account can earn 50 bonus status credits by spending at least $50 at BP at least five times between the 1st of July and the 30th of September this year. And until the 13th of July, you can also earn 50 bonus Qantas status credits by applying for a new Qantas health insurance policy. This offer also comes with up to 140,000 bonus Qantas points for the most expensive policies. But when one door opens, another one closes. From the 31st of July, Qantas Frequent Flyer will end its partnership with Terry White Kemmart. 
Virgin Australia has resumed selling lounge memberships and one-time access at the door. Virgin Australia Lounge membership now costs $399 per year, which is cheaper than it used to be for red members, but actually more expensive for Velocity Silver members who previously got a reduced rate. But there's no joining fee now with the Virgin Lounge membership. And this compares to a Qantas Club annual fee of $600, so it is a bit cheaper. Access to Virgin Australia lounges can also be purchased at the door up to two hours before your Virgin Australia flight for $65. And Australia's Civil Aviation Safety Authority, or CASA, will allow pet cats and dogs to fly in aircraft passenger cabins from December. But it will still be up to individual airlines whether they allow this. So far, Qantas has ruled it out, but Virgin Australia is considering the idea. Trained guide dogs are already allowed to travel on board flights when accompanying vision-impaired passengers. That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning. Turn your bills into business class with the SNP app. Whether it's an ATO bill, rates, utilities, phone, school fees, body corporate or any of the other 60,000 plus bills with a BPAY biller code on it, you can pay it with SNP and earn full frequent flyer points for your credit card spend. You can use your Visa, MasterCard or American Express to pay bills with the SNP app and pay just a 1.5% processing fee including GST. There are no other hidden fees. The 1.5% processing fee even applies for American Express payments. Now that's just 0.05% more than the ATO's card payment surcharge for Amex. And with SNP, you'll earn points on your Amex card at the full everyday spend rate and not the reduced rate that you'd normally get at the tax office. SNP also has some convenient features. You can connect your emails to the SNP app and have your billers automatically added to the app when they arrive in your inbox. You'll then get a handy push notification when your bill's ready for payment. You can pay the bill on the spot, schedule it for later, set up an instalment plan or create a recurring payment. And you can even use Apple Pay or Google Pay. So it's no surprise why SNP has processed more than $150 million worth of bill payments and counting. It really is the easiest and most rewarding way to pay your bills. With tax time in front of us now, there's never been a better time to try SNP. Simply download the free SNP app on your mobile device and enter the code AFR10 on sign up for $10 off your first bill payment. That's SNP with two I's, S-N-I-I-P. Earlier this year, consumer group Choice surveyed more than 4,000 Australians whose travel plans were disrupted by COVID-19 about their experiences with cancellations and how easy or difficult it was to get a refund or a travel credit. This week, Choice published its findings in a report called Consumer Protection for Australian Travellers, a Plan for Clarity, Consistency and Fairness. And the findings, I've got to say, are pretty damning for the travel industry on the whole. According to Choice, only 17% of survey respondents actually got a full refund. Over half waited more than three months for a resolution, and 90% of respondents believe Australian laws need to change to make it easier for consumers to get a refund when they're unable to travel. Alison Elliott is one of the authors of the report and head of policy and government relations at Choice, and she joins me now. Welcome to the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, Alison. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. 
So your report found sort of four key problems about the current state of the travel industry, particularly when uh, people's travel plans get disrupted by COVID-19 and need to cancel. What were those four problems that you found? So the first was that there's poor information about consumer rights. People often talked about um, wanting to be proactive with their booking as things unfolded with the pandemic. So what we saw was people proactively cancelling their booking or perhaps uh, deciding not to pay the balance of their booking, thinking that was the best thing to do in the circumstances. What they didn't know was that by doing that, they were actually um, uh, perhaps limiting their right to a refund under the terms and conditions of their booking. And had they um, maintained the booking and waited for the service, perhaps the flight to be cancelled in any event, that they would have been um, entitled to a refund or had more options to talk through with their provider. That's the first issue. Mm -hmm. The second issue and a major one that we're concerned about um, is poor customer service and complaints processes in the industry. So time and time again, we heard of stories where people had limited means of communication. So some providers actually um, cut off, uh, you know, particular means of communication, Mm. whether that was email or chat function or um, telephone numbers, making it almost impossible for some people to talk to somebody about um, their booking and what was happening. Now, when the issue was time sensitive, that caused people, understandably, a great amount of stress. Oftentimes when people did get through to someone to talk to, they were given the runaround. And that was particularly the case with people um, who had bookings through travel agents. Um, You know, there was a lot of block passing between travel agents and ultimate providers. And that left many people feeling very frustrated um, and very anxious if, if their booking involved thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. The third issue was that we've seen a lot of inconsistent and sometimes unfair solutions when bookings have had to be cancelled. So sometimes this has meant that consumers are out of pocket. That's definitely the case with non-refundable bookings. Um, But with others, perhaps they were charged uh, fees for cancellation, which meant that obviously they've only received a partial refund. Another aspect of this problem is for those who received uh, travel credits, although there was definitely a cohort who were very happy to receive travel credits, they're actually very concerned that then they won't be practically able to use those credits and vouchers. So just to highlight one example, one respondent said that they have $9,000 worth of travel credits that they have to use in domestic airfares in the next couple of years, which quite clearly is just very impractical. The fourth problem was that there are poor protections when companies become insolvent. So as we sadly saw throughout last year, a number of travel companies collapsed given the understandably very challenging um, circumstances. What this has meant for consumers is that, you know, they're at the back of the queue when um, uh, entitlements are determined. Um, And so, you know, although a lot of these 
cases remain ongoing, they're very concerned that essentially they've probably lost most, if not all, of their money. So these were the four major issues that we identified through those nearly 4,500 consumer stories. And we think there's good reason to reflect upon these lessons and try to put in place stronger com- uh, consumer protection so that going forward, we can avoid this situation into the future. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, there were almost 4,500 responses. What would you say was the most egregious example of a consumer being treated unfairly that you found in those responses? Oh, look, it, it's hard to identify one one mm. case alone. I, I'll highlight just a few. Yes, there were examples of people who had tens of thousands of dollars um, wrapped up in these bookings. And what you have to remember is oftentimes the bookings were made, were made ahead of time, six months, 12 months in advance. So actually by the time people got money back in their pocket, if at all, um, some companies had held on to this money for, you know, a year if not more. Um, that's a long time, um, which obviously no one foresaw the pandemic happening. But obviously in the past, this was an industry practice um, built around the certainty of the travelling environment, which we just don't have at this point in time. So that's an issue that needs to be looked at. Another issue that really stood out to me and that I think we can all find very frustrating is having to spend hours and hours on the telephone line waiting for someone to answer our call. I don't think that's acceptable across any industry, frankly. And the fact that there are other systems like telephone callback systems, which, you know, I think we can all appreciate that in this environment, there are challenging conditions for business, but keeping people on hold for hours and hours on end um, is, is frankly a bit disrespectful. And whilst in the early days of the pandemic, I think everyone appreciated that there was a lot of challenges for businesses, we're still hearing stories of people waiting on hold for unacceptably long periods of time. And a lot of consumers in our survey thought that they'd received an outcome just out of sheer perseverance of being able to stay on the line for such a long time. Some people spoke of being disconnected after waiting on the line for a considerable period. So, you know, whilst we don't expect these issues to be fixed overnight, the ability for someone to get some information and some assistance within a reasonable period, I think, is a reasonable expectation on these businesses. And, um, you know, measures like callback services, we think, could really help. Absolutely. And it's interesting, we've had a lot of complaints on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum over the past year about Qantas on both of those issues that you just brought up. Um, so the first one being unable to get through to them or waiting on hold for hours. I mean, just uh, just on Thursday on our forum, we had someone say that uh, they Qantas changed their flight. They were trying to get through to them and they were on hold for two hours, got hung up on as soon as the call got connected, tried again, waited for another two hours, call got disconnected, and then the third time they had to wait for another two hours and eventually got through. So that was six hours they spent on hold oh. trying to change just a just a simple domestic flight. 
um, let alone trying to get a refund. And the other thing that we've seen a lot with Qantas is just the amount of time it's taking to get a refund. Uh, with Qantas, it's, it's become relatively common knowledge on our forum, at least, that um, it, you'll probably be waiting at least eight weeks for a refund. And uh, if you basically, if you call up Qantas with, and it's been less than eight weeks since the flight was cancelled, they'll tell you to go away. And if it's been more than eight weeks, then, then magically the call centre agent can uh, immediately expedite the refund. It gets processed within the next couple of business days. So it, it's almost like they're deliberately making people wait at least eight weeks, which is uh, not, not exactly fair on consumers, is it? Yeah, look, it does make you query whether there's just a red button somewhere waiting to be pushed <laughs> if it can be done so immediately when a complaint is escalated. Look, I think, you know, the ACCC guidance is that refunds should be um, processed within a reasonable time. So I don't think we should be expecting these refunds to be processed, you know, immediately. But given we know what we know um, in the last year and a half, I think it's reasonable to expect that these systems should be more advanced so as to process these refunds more quickly than what they have been. And certainly what I would say is that some people in the survey um, reported that they'd been waiting, you know, definitely over, as we said in the intro, 53 percent said they'd been waiting more than three months, but others had been waiting six, ten, even up to 12 months. So I would actually just say in comparison, eight weeks in comparison to, to so 10 bad. months is, yeah, it's not, it's not as extreme um, as some of the examples that we heard of. Yeah, the bars but have I would quite say low. As well, yeah, I would say as well, Eight weeks is a long period for people if they're experiencing financial hardship. So that to us actually highlights the fact that a lot of these providers should have hardship policies in place as they do exist in other industries so that for for customers really needing that money back um, in their pocket to pay for their essential bills, that process should absolutely be expedited. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess if a customer's flight is cancelled by the airline due to border closures or due to COVID restrictions, um, I guess there's a question of whether customers are entitled to a refund. And uh, what does the Australian consumer law say about this? So the really frustrating answer to that question is it depends. And this is part of the problem we're we're trying to solve at the moment. So currently, um, as we talked about, there's a bit of a get-out clause in Australian consumer law, which says um, uh, which doesn't apply to services in the event of an intervening uh, event out of the control of the business um, or consumer, um, and that basically means that the individual terms and conditions of the individual businesses will dictate what a consumer gets in the event of a cancellation due to such an intervening event. I would say that the other provisions of the Australian Consumer Law continue to apply. So the prohibition on misleading and deceptive conduct continue to apply. The prohibition on unfair contract terms continue to apply, as do many others. So there are those minimum protections 
still in place. So that means, for example, that if the terms and conditions said at the time of booking that you'd be entitled to a refund in the event of a cancellation, businesses can't mislead you that you're not entitled to a refund um, after the fact. So those provisions continue to apply. But otherwise, the consumer law does not set out what rights and remedies um, a consumer is entitled to in the event of a cancellation due to um, you know, intervening events like a pandemic. Um, and, and that's the reason, really, why consumers are experiencing so many varied outcomes because it is largely dictated by the individual terms and conditions of individual businesses. And at one end of the, the spectrum, some businesses, oftentimes the smaller businesses who are probably in... Um, you know, less of a state to be able to do this are trying to really trying to do the right thing. And they have been very responsive to their customers and have tried to provide refunds um, or at least a partial refund quickly because they want to maintain their business. But at the other end of the spectrum, of course, the report outlines examples where both of the combination of the poor customer service and really going above and beyond trying to do everything but give refunds. Um, yeah, we've seen the full spectrum of, of business behaviour and obviously it's the, the problematic um, end of that spectrum that we're trying to improve here. Absolutely. And actually, in my own experience, the smaller operators, and in fact, the smaller the operator, the more likely you are to get a, a refund or a good resolution. So it seems like the little guys are actually trying to do the right thing. And it's often the big um, businesses that are sort of mucking people around. But I guess in your view, who should bear the cost if the cancellation is neither the fault of the consumer nor the business? Uh, do you think the Australian consumer law needs to change? We absolutely think it needs to change and Choice has developed a seven-point plan outlining to Australian governments what measures we think uh, will improve consumer outcomes. Yeah, so what are the, what are the seven recommendations that you've made? Sure. Uh, so the first is a minimum right to a refund. So other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and also in Europe already have laws that require providers to give refunds in certain circumstances. So for packaged holiday deals, um, they're required by law to give refunds within 14 days and for cancelled flights within seven days. So we really think we can learn from these models from overseas um, and try to get in place, um, you know, similar consumer protections for Australian travellers. We would also like to see minimum rights around um, travel credits. You know, for a certain cohort of traveller, they're very happy to receive travel credits. Um, and our position is that if they elect to receive travel credits as opposed to a refund, um, then those travel credits should come with conditions that ensure that they're practically usable. So we've suggested measures like a minimum term of three years, the ability to transfer the credit to another person and to split over multiple bookings. Um, we think that's really important. And you might recall, but the law changed several years ago in relation to gift cards, recognising that 
oftentimes the terms and conditions attached to gift cards actually meant that a lot of consumers were losing out and missing missing out on practically using that because of short expiration periods and so forth. That's right. So we think we we can learn some lessons from from that um, those consumer protections and put in place similar measures so that um, travel credits are practically usable and. I would say on that point that there's even greater necessity regarding travel credits because of the sheer um, value of them. You know, often gift cards can be smaller sums of money, perhaps $50 or $100 or even $20. With travel credits, we're talking potentially thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. So we think there's a real case to be made that um, these measures should be in place. Third, we'd love to lift the standards of customer service across the industry, but particularly with um, with airlines and large travel and tourism businesses by putting in place a mandatory industry code that establishes um, minimum requirements for consumer protections, including um, refund protections for people experiencing financial hardship, as we spoke of before, and a maximum time frame for businesses to provide refunds. Or we would love to uh, establish a travel and tourism industry ombudsman to make it easier for people to get disputes heard and resolved. So similar ombudsman um, schemes exist with other industries, including the telecommunications and financial services industry. And we think um, a similar model should apply with travel and tourism. Five, we would love to see a mandatory information standard provided by travel and tourism uh, companies at the time of booking so consumers are really clear about what their rights are in the event of cancellation and also information about complaints processes should they have to go down that path. Mm -hmm. Two other final measures we've recommended are, number one, um, an ACCC market study into the travel and tourism sector. So we know that the travel and tourism supply chain can be quite complex and there are many intermediary bodies and new business models that have come onto the scene in recent years and that means the flow of money can be quite complicated. We also know that with international travel, it can be complicated further because oftentimes the money might be going to third parties based entirely in other jurisdictions. So we recognise that this is a really complicated issue and we think that there's a strong case that the ACCC um, should be investigating the supply chain processes and competition issues more fully so that we can consider um, what measures might be most effective to enable those refunds to occur and whether there's a case for regulating particular aspects of the supply chain in a more specific way. So I know that there have been suggestions that um, that trust funds, for example, might be appropriate for travel agents, and they might be, but we feel at this point in time that we need a thorough, comprehensive investigation into the supply chain so that we can understand these complexities a bit further before concluding that those measures will be effective for both consumers and ideally for businesses. 
And then lastly, we would love to see a website um, established which provides official, impartial, timely information about COVID restrictions um, applying across Australia. So the benefit that we see for such a website is that both businesses and consumers will be on the same page and there can be no debate over whether um, a service can go ahead or whether a traveller can travel. Um, and we envisage that that service could be similar to the Smart Traveller website, which I'm sure you and your listeners will be very familiar with, where people can register their travels and get real-time kind of updates on the changing situation there. Hmm. So that's our seven-point plan for reform. Um, and fundamentally, though, it's targeted at trying to restore consumer confidence so that they can book travel into the future because, you know, this uncertainty connected to COVID is not going away. And we don't think that the disappointment of having your travel plans cancelled and just the knowledge of not being able to see your loved ones or to participate in that travel or the business undertaking you've been hoping to do you shouldn't have to go through the added stress of not knowing what your rights are, where you stand, what you'll get back, and the sheer frustration of not having to, not being able to talk to somebody. We can solve those problems. We may not be able to remove all of the uncertainty around COVID, but we can put in place these stronger con consumer protection frameworks so that people know that they stand in a fair and clear position should their travel plans have to be cancelled. Yeah, they all sound really reasonable and, and uh, like they would be very helpful for consumers. So I, I hope you have luck with that. And just on the last point, with a, tr with a website just for domestic COVID-19 travel restrictions, that would be super, super helpful. I mean, on Australian Frequent Fire, I've been updating multiple times a week. We've got a list of um, state border restrictions and uh, which forms you need to fill out to go to which state and things. But I've got to say, it's kind of a nightmare to keep up with all of the changes. And often yeah. I'll update the article in the morning and then by the evening, it'll be out of date already. So if there's one place where, with all of that information spelt out and also historic information, that would be really useful for consumers. But I just want to um, touch on, you mentioned um, impractical and useless credit vouchers and and just the fact that some of these travel vouchers that people have are worth tens of thousands of dollars. And like you gave the example of um, someone who had $9,000 worth of domestic flights they have to use in the next year or two. Uh, I've seen examples as well of people that had Virgin Australia travel credits um, that they, for example, had booked a flight from the United States to Australia on Virgin before they went into administration. Now they're stuck in the United States with a you know $5,000 or $10,000 Virgin vouchers, which they can't use because they can't come to Australia. And so there's all sorts of issues surrounding that. But I guess this would have been complicated by the fact that Virgin Australia entered administration um, we've also seen like Thai Airways and a few other airlines enter bankruptcy, and that's sort of what what was what was what did you find in terms of um, the complications when airlines or, or travel businesses had entered bankruptcy? Did that make it harder for consumers to get their money back? Well, look, as I mentioned before, I think it's hard to have a conclusive answer on that issue because I think my understanding is a lot of the processes are ongoing, um, but I know that a lot of consumers felt very confused and kind of left in the dark by those liquidation kind of processes. Mm -hmm. And also, yes, of course, the, the Virgin administration as well. Um, 
our report didn't go into detail the the issue around the Virgin administration, but certainly what came through to us is people are very worried um, with STA travel and flight 365 that they won't get anything back for their money. Time will only tell whether or not that is the case. But, of course, the situation is because we don't have a compensation scheme of last resort, as used to exist historically, consumers don't have a a source of protection to know that should their travel agent go under, they will still be able to recoup their money. We don't have in place that was disbanded several years ago. Mm. And so essentially that places the risk back on consumers um, because really they're at the the end of the queue in terms of um, creditors for a company. Um, They're unsecured creditors. So, yeah, it's... um, there's a real question mark over what, right. if anything, they'll get back for their money. And it doesn't have to be that way. There, there, there can be um, regulatory measures to ensure that we don't leave high and dry um, any person who might be affected by um, a business going into administration. Yeah, and as you say, it doesn't have to be that way. In the UK, for example, I know that the uh, the most, I think, travel agencies or people making sort of travel tour bookings, holiday bookings. Um, in the UK, there's kind of a levy. I think it's about two pounds or four pounds or something that goes to the government when you make a holiday package booking. And then if the business goes under, then the government will sort of bail you out. And I remember when Thomas Cook, the travel company, went out of business a year or two ago, um, the UK government actually put on repatriation flights for all the people who were stuck overseas and, and they were able to be compensated for that. So it seems like this do exist overseas, I guess. You also mentioned before this idea of having an ombudsman to make it easier to get disputes with airlines resolved. Now, we do already have the airline customer advocate in Australia. Is this just a toothless tiger? I mean, surely if they were doing a good job, then we wouldn't need an ombudsman. Look, our conclusion is that the airline customer advocate has not uh, been effective in um, assisting consumers throughout 2020 and 2021. Um, You'll see in the report we outlined their own explanation of the very limited remit that they had in assisting um, consumers with um, the complaints and issues that they were experiencing. And so we think there's a really strong case um, for looking at other models of helping people to resist resolve their complaints Um, and there are also structural issues you know we know that the best models of consumer complaint um, forums you know require independent um, boards with you know appropriate representation of, of consumers and perhaps industry representatives as well so that we know that whilst being informed by expertise and understanding of the sector that there is um, you know an an overarching ethos of independence um, applying there are very interesting funding models for such ombudsman schemes which incentivize businesses to quickly and promptly and fairly resolve these issues so whilst I, I my understanding of the AFCA model applying to financial services is that 
there's a set fee, a scale of fees of uh, dependent upon how small or big the company is. Obviously, the bigger the size, the, the bigger the fee, and likewise, the smaller entities, it's a, the smallest, the fee is really quite small. But then there's a sliding scale of fees that also apply to reflect the number of complaints received by the ombudsman um, in relation to particular businesses. So the more complaints, um, it's a user pays model uh, effectively. So the more complaints received regarding particular companies, the the higher the fee they have to pay. So there's an incentive there to um, those businesses that the quicker and more fairly they can resolve those complaints with consumers, um, the less they have to pay to that forum because, of course, fewer customers will be needing to seek recourse there. So, you know, that will reward businesses that are doing the right thing and working with their customer base um, proactively to to find fair um, outcomes together. Don't the airlines that the airline customer advocate is supposed to regulate also finance the airline customer advocate? I mean, is there, there a bit of a conflict of interest there? My understanding is that that's the case and, yeah, there's there's certainly better models that we would suggest um, that would provide a, a more independent and effective um, complaints for mm. than what presently exists with the airline customer advocate. Mm. And just finally, do you have any sort of tips for consumers who are having trouble getting refunds for cancelled travel bookings? Oh, look, yes. First of all, be very clear with well first of all read the terms and conditions um and that's a very frustrating answer i presume for many (laughs) people to hear but you know as we spoke of before it really is those terms and conditions that applied at the time of booking that will largely dictate your rights and remedies um if, if you want to escalate a complaint, I'd, I'd be very clear about that language, that you're, you are dissatisfied with that um, and you'd like to lodge a complaint um, about that outcome. I would also say you, you could investigate credit card chargebacks, although this isn't an issue we covered in our report. It is potentially something you could look into if you had travel insurance at the time. Um, you should also contact your insurer to see if you have any um, recourse there. And also I would say um, obviously contact your state Fair Trading Commission or the ACCC and they can help you um, if you would like to lodge a complaint there. I would also say if you agree with Choice and our recommendations to improve consumer protections across the the sector, join us, join our campaign, sign on to our petition. Yeah, so tell me about your petition. So we've developed this seven-point plan for reform, but of course um, we would love to send the message to um, consumer affairs ministers and to governments that this is an issue that people care about and would like to see um, addressed and improved. We can do that by uniting together and through members of the public signing on to our uh, petition, calling on Australian government to reform the travel sector so that you can, we can all book confidently that to know that 
into the future, we know that consumers will get a fair, clear and consistent outcome should their travel plans have to be cancelled due to COVID restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll put a link in the episode notes for this podcast to the Choice Report and the petition. So if you'd like to sign that, then absolutely go and check it out. Well, Alison Elliott, Head of Policy and Government Relations at Choice, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for your time. Well, sadly, the Trans-Tasman travel bubble has been quite heavily disrupted over the past fortnight. The last episode of this podcast was released two weeks ago on Saturday the 26th of June, and that same evening New Zealand took the unprecedented step of pausing all travel from Australia to New Zealand, or at least unprecedented since the bubble was launched. As it happened, I was supposed to fly from Auckland to Perth the very next morning, so it was pretty unsettling to say the least. Just after midnight, Air New Zealand sent me an email to say that my flight was cancelled and they had no alternative flights to offer. But then um, during the middle of the night, I then got another message saying that actually the flight would go ahead and to travel to the airport. So I did end up flying over to Perth as planned, although the crew informed me that they would have to ferry the aircraft home the following night with no passengers since nobody was allowed to fly in the other direction. Uh, I do believe, though, that they had quite a healthy load of cargo in the belly, which is how the flight was still able to run. Now, the early New Zealand flight was actually pretty close to being full over to Perth, which surprised me. Um, now, I'd booked a business class ticket using Chris Flyer Miles, and I thought the service on Air New Zealand was really good, better than Qantas, in fact. And I'll write a full review, which will be available on AFF next week, but I thought the Air New Zealand business class uh, seat itself was actually quite weird. It's a 1-1-1 layout, so everyone gets direct aisle access, big tick there. But it's a weird sort of herringbone configuration where everyone is sitting on an angle facing away from the window and sort of facing into the aisle and to the rest of the cabin. Now, I actually had a bit of a sore neck at the end of the flight from just from trying to look out the window. And there's also very little privacy. So unless you're in the front row, you're basically also staring at everyone else's feet, which are kind of stuck out in the aisle. Now, that said, when the seat converted into a bed, it was actually a very comfortable bed. Unlike Qantas, Air New Zealand continues to offer a comfortable mattress, topper, pillows and blankets in its long-haul business class at the moment. And Air New Zealand also still provides amenity kits, something which Qantas isn't doing at the moment. Arriving back into Australia was simple enough. I had to fill out an Australia travel declaration online before I flew home, which is now a requirement for anyone travelling to Australia. And I also had to apply for a G2G pass for Western Australia, which was checked on arrival. After landing in Perth, we had to remain seated for about 15 minutes while the police came on board and made some announcements and the crew handed out some information from the Australian government about COVID-19. Uh, and in total, it took around half an hour to leave the airport, which isn't too bad, although we were the only international flight arriving in Perth at the time. And back in May, when I arrived in Auckland, it only took about eight minutes. From Perth, I was planning to travel onwards into regional Western Australia. But unfortunately, by just the following evening, everything changed in the space of about 24 hours. Perth was suddenly in lockdown. Uh, or about to go into lockdown. And since I was no longer um, able to continue into regional Western Australia as I'd planned, and since I normally live in Canberra, I decided there wasn't really much point sticking around in Western Australia. So I tried to get on a flight home that night. Now, from the time that the Perth lockdown, which was supposed to begin at midnight that night, was announced, there was around three hours to go until the Qantas Red Eye to Melbourne was due to depart at at 10 minutes to midnight. So I jumped onto the Qantas website and tried to book a ticket. 
Now, unfortunately, the website just did not work. It did not want to give me a ticket or take my money. I couldn't book a classic flight reward, and I also couldn't book a paid ticket on the Qantas website. So eventually, I did give up and just went to Perth Airport. When I got to the airport, there was just under an hour until the Melbourne flight was departing. Uh, Unfortunately, since Qantas closed all of its airport sales desks and service counters earlier this year, nobody was actually able to sell me a ticket or even help me at the airport. I approached one of the Qantas customer service representatives and he basically just told me that nobody working at the airport was trained in ticketing and also said that, well, I should have arrived at the airport earlier, which is really helpful, except that the lockdown was only just announced a couple of hours previously, um, and which is the only reason I was trying to travel. Now, he gave me the priority ticketing desk number at least to call, um, which I did call, but unfortunately, they never answered the phone. And meanwhile, my travel agent was also trying to book me a ticket, but he couldn't get it ticketed, and he also couldn't get through to the Qantas call centre as a Platinum member. Um, This, mind you, being around 11pm Perth time, so it would have been about 1 o'clock in the morning in the East Coast and about 3 o'clock in the morning in in New Zealand where the main call centre is. So I realised it was probably a pretty terrible time to be calling, and... um, also, with the with all the different border closures that were being announced around the same time, there must have been a lot of people trying to get through. I do understand that. But we later found out that actually the reason that my travel agent couldn't ticket the booking was because of an error in the way that Qantas Ready Deal fares have been filed. So there was that as well. And in the end, I just could not book a ticket. I watched the flight leave without me. Now, I realized that um, removing airport ticket desks is a cost-cutting move. But I have to ask, how much revenue is Qantas losing from customers that cannot buy a ticket? Now, I wrote about this in a recent article on AFF. It's called Qantas Airport Service Desk Closures Disastrous. And that pretty much sums up how much of an epic fail this was for Qantas. Now, I do realize, as as I said, it was a busy evening. um, And you can read a response from Qantas in my article. But to say I was unimpressed would be an understatement. Now, when Qantas announced it was going to be closing its airport service desks, this is exactly the kind of thing that frequent flyers were predicting. I mean, it's fine to do these kinds of things if there is a self-service alternative, but the call centre is not staffed properly and the website did not work. And the call centre hasn't been staffed properly, not just since the beginning of COVID, but I recall this being a problem since 2016, since Qantas closed most of the call centres in Australia. And this is the consequence. I am pleased to say that I'm back home now, but because I wasn't able to leave Perth until the next day, I was subject to restrictions in the ACT when I got home that I would not have been if I had left on the flight that I was actually trying to book on. And I mean, I wasn't really annoyed about that because I was planning to stay home after I got back home anyway. But what if you were traveling to see a family member who was about to die or uh, if you had some other really urgent, important reason to travel? I mean, can you really count on Qantas when you need them the most if this is what happens? Now, in terms of the Trans-Tasman bubble, thankfully this has now partially resumed. Travel from Tasmania, Victoria, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory to New Zealand resumed on the 5th of July, which was earlier this week. Travel from Western Australia and the Northern Territory to New Zealand has also now resumed and flights from Queensland are due to resume shortly. Although travel from New South Wales to New Zealand remains paused indefinitely, um, with Sydney, of course, still under lockdown. Fingers crossed, though, that won't be for too much longer. 
And anyone traveling from Australia to New Zealand now will need to get a COVID-19 test within 72 hours before departing from Australia. This generally needs to be from a private pathology clinic because the free public tests are not available uh, to people who are just getting a test for the purpose of international travel in general. And also the SMS results that you get with the free test generally don't include all the information that the New Zealand authorities need. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Alison Elliott from Choice, and thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF On Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels. Listener.